0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: And financially supported by listeners like you.
3: Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra.
4: And I'm Phil Casper. Today, we have a news story on cross state air pollution from the Indiana Environmental Network.
3: We also have a feature from Norm Holy, part one, of an interview with Dave Alp Applin about the proposed pebble mine and the threat it would pose to the Alaskan wilderness.
4: That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines.
3: On October 1st, two members of the Catholic Worker Movement, Jessica Resnick and Ruby Montoya, were charged with one count of conspiracy to damage an energy facility, four counts of the use of fire in the commission of a felony, and four counts of malicious use of fire. As an act of protest, the two women openly sabotaged the Dakota Access Pipeline, and now face over a 100 years in prison. Resnick and Montoya responded to the global climate crisis in a way they thought was appropriate. They broke open the pipeline while it was under construction, burned the valves that open and close it, and also burned equipment used to build it. They didn't harm anyone, At the time of the actions, they held a news conference in which they publicly admitted having undertaken the actions and detailed why they thought it was necessary to destroy machinery contributing to the climate crisis. Their trial begins on December 2nd in Des Moines, Iowa.
4: Fossil fuel lobbyists have persuaded lawmakers in Indiana and several other states to pass laws that criminalize protests at oil and gas infrastructure. Now the industry is proposing that Congress pass similar bills into federal law. These laws would make it a felony for people to tamper with oil pipelines or other facilities, including infrastructure under construction. The Association of Oil Pipelines, a lobbying organization representing major oil and gas pipeline companies, provided federal legislators with model legislation. In June, the Department of Transportation introduced in the Senate legislation that echoed industry requests for criminal penalties of up to 20 years behind bars for interfering with the operation of an oil or gas pipeline. This legislation was introduced to both the Senate and House of Representatives, but current authorization ended on September 30, 2019. HR 3432 failed to include criminal penalties for protesting due in part to opposition from Representative Bobby Rush, D-Illinois, and Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, D-New York. Kathleen Ruane, senior legislative counsel with the ACLU, said in an article at the intercept.com, "Proponents of these anti-protest measures claim that they are intended to ensure safety. However, there are already laws on the books for that." These measures are clearly intended to chill the speech of environmental activists, Native American tribes, and their allies in the fight to protect their lands and water, unquote. Here at the state level, when Indiana Senate Bill 471 was introduced last spring, Dan Cannon, a constitutional lawyer from New Albany, told Indy Star, quote, The law operates in a way that chills speech even if no one is ever arrested, unquote. Cannon, a former congressional candidate, called the bill, quote, unconstitutional and contrary to the bedrock principles of a free society, unquote. In May, Governor Eric Holcomb signed SB 471. Cannon now says the state bill should be contested in court. Scientists say marine protected areas are an
3: effective means of protecting the marine plants and animals facing threats from ocean acidification Heat waves, overfishing, and pollution. Protected areas can provide benefits, like protecting endangered species or helping replenish fish stocks that spill into neighborhood fisheries. The most highly regulated parks have the most benefits, and according to a report released by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, unabated emissions will have a severe effect on biodiversity. In 2014, scientists called for 30% of the world's oceans to be protected by 2030. Experts caution that only 2% of the world's oceans are fully off limits to commercial activity and only 5% is actively managed. One tool for maintaining the sanctity of a marine protected area is enforcement. Enforcement generally requires that a fishing boat operating in a protected area only pays a penalty when a government boat comes into the protected area and catches them fishing illegally. So illegal fishing is difficult to enforce. To illustrate the gravity of the situation, there is illegal fishing, mostly at night, in the Galapagos, which is one of the few remaining natural habitats. Also in an area west of Costa Rica, which is a protected area for sharks, fishermen illegally catch
4: and kill sharks for shark fin soup. There is an extreme salmon crisis in British Columbia. Currently, very few salmon are making their way upstream to spawn. The water temperatures are so high that the salmon are waiting at the mouths of rivers for the temperature to drop. In some areas, salmon are dying. This is not a new phenomenon. Rather, it is a worsening of conditions seen for many years. The lack of salmon is now leading to starving orcas and starving grizzly bears. Volunteers from the First Nation recently took fish from a hatchery to estuary areas where the bears are known to feed. While it is unusual to help bears, it is now evident that the hungry bears are wandering away from their traditional feeding grounds to search for food. Grizzlies are starting to venture to all the small islands in the area and are even making their way over to Vancouver Island in search of fish, something that rarely happened in the past. The people of the Mamaleel First Nation have a duty to the bears since they are the stewards of the land and it would be unethical to watch the grizzlies perish. It's not just the bears that do not have fish. Tribe members rely on frozen and canned fish in the winter, but they have empty freezers this year. A report released earlier this summer pointed out that the salmon's ecosystem has changed rapidly. Canada is experiencing warming twice as fast as the global average. The report also noted other factors like marine heat waves, flooding, and droughts that are stressing Canada's fish stocks. The same is true in Alaska, where this summer's heat waves killed hundreds of salmon. And last month, the commercial fishing lobby asked the government for disaster relief to help the industry since the fishing had been so poor. Warm water is even an issue in the Yukon River, which empties in the northern part of the Bering Sea. And now
3: for some good news. The City of Bloomington Utilities reports that recent testing of the lake water entering the Monroe Water Treatment Plant shows that the water is free of several contaminants that have been detected in other water sources around the country. The utility is committed to ensuring that the water provided to the residents of Bloomington is within all regulatory parameters and of the highest possible quality. Every hour, drinking water is monitored for compliance to standards established by the United States Environmental Protection Agency. The 2019 Water Quality Report is mailed to every water customer in the city and available at the city's website. In addition to monitoring the compounds regulated by the EPA, the utility has conducted tests for those not currently regulated by federal or state guidelines but that have been detected in the water supply in other areas. Testing includes three emergency contaminants, microcystin, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and perchlorate, which are being considered for
4: future regulation under the Safe Drinking Water Act. In more good news, the Friends of Lake Monroe is developing a watershed management plan for the lake in 2020. To help develop the plan, the 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Bloomton was awarded a 319 grant from IDEM this year. The grant was matched by many donating organizations that can be found in the Friends of Lake Monroe website. Students and faculty of IU's School of Public and Environmental Affairs and volunteers will be assisting with a study of the overall health of the watershed. This will include sampling blitzes to find the pollutant loads and sources and desktop and windshield surveys looking for confined feeding, dumps, and soil erosion. The goal of this testing is to find solutions to make Lake Monroe healthier for all who enjoy it. On November 14th, the Friends of Lake Monroe is hosting a public input session in the Great Hall of First United Methodist Church from 6.30 to 8.00 p.m. Everyone is invited to hear about and discuss the future of the watershed of Lake Monroe next up
3: we have a news story on cross-state air pollution from the indiana environmental network easily visible in the nation's cities and industrial centers health for residents was declining and it was easy to see that air pollution played at least some part in that in 1963 congress passed a clean air act to prevent air pollution and protect the ozone layer it was a good first step but it had no teeth Major amendments were added in 1970 that resulted in a major shift in the federal government's role in air pollution control. Four major regulatory programs were initiated to control pollution from stationary sources like power plants. The Clean Air Act also resulted in the birth of the Environmental Protection Agency. Ever since then, the EPA has been the federal government's environmental watchdog, in theory. A pair of lawsuits argues that the EPA is slacking on an important provision of the Clean Air Act making sure that pollution in one state doesn't affect the air quality in another. Here's IER's Beth Edwards.
0: A pair of court decisions may force the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to revise the way it handles the amount of air pollution allowed to travel from heavy-polluting states, like Indiana, to downward states. The decisions come mid-September after two environmental groups, and several states sued the EPA for not doing enough to protect states downwind to heavy polluters. Neil Gormley is a staff attorney for the environmental legal group Earth Justice.
2: The Clean Air Act is designed to protect public health. Uh, it starts with EPA deciding what level of pollution is consistent with protecting public health, what level of air pollution is safe, and then it relies on states to do the primary work of cleaning up their air. The problem is that air pollution doesn't stay within state boundaries. So upwind states, when they emit pollution, that pollution actually travels across state lines and makes the air quality worse in downwind states. And that's exactly the problem that we have today, where many states, including a lot of states in the Midwest that have a lot of coal-fired power plants and other industrial sources of pollution, are emitting smog that blows across state lines and causes unhealthy air quality in downwind states. And this has really serious consequences for, for human health.
0: Gormley represented two environmental groups, the Sierra Club and the Appalachian Mountain Club, in the suit. The Clean Air Act outlines the EPA's responsibilities for protecting and improving the nation's air quality. Under the law, the EPA must establish emission standards, known as National Ambient Air Quality Standards, for harmful air pollutants, such as criteria pollutants. A part of the Clean Air Act requires states to do something about the cross-state pollution. Under the Good Neighbor provision of the law, the EPA must prohibit states from emitting pollution in amounts that could affect the air quality in other states and prevent them from attaining and maintaining pollutant standards. The cross-state pollution requirements have been modified several times by new rules, with the most recent regulation issued in 2016 by the Obama administration. The 2016 Cross-State Air Pollution Rule update Place further limitations on emissions from power plants across state lines. But the Sierra Club, the Appalachian Mountain Club, and several states sued the EPA in 2018, saying the rule did not go far enough to stop upwind states from spreading their pollutants to downwind states.
2: So it was, uh, you know, we, we talked with Sierra Club and we talked with Appalachian Mountain Club, and we realized that EPA actually has a legal obligation to take steps when upwind states aren't controlling their pollution. It's EPA's job to step in and do that. And this actually was under the Obama administration. And the Obama administration ended up issuing a rule that was sort of a half measure. It achieved some reductions in air pollution, which was good, but EPA admitted that the reductions that it achieved were not enough to achieve healthy air in downwind states. So that was why we filed a lawsuit, and we argued that while half a step was better than nothing, EPA needed to finish the job. It needed to find a way to reduce the pollution enough that people living downwind would actually have the clean air that the Clean Air Act is intended to provide.
0: The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court on September 13th, found that the updated rule's limited scope led to a significant omission, a deadline for compliance. The updated rule does not require upwind states to eliminate their significant contributions to downwind ozone pollution by that date, or any date for that matter, the three judge panel wrote. The court ruled that the open ending compliance timeframe exceeded the bounds of the EPA's statutory authority and allowed the states to continue contributing to downwind states' air pollution. On September 18th, attorneys for the EPA asked the court to indefinitely delay oral arguments while the agency decides how to proceed. Cormley said the ruling reinforces the action that the EPA should take to protect the nation's air quality.
2: The decision last week confirms a bedrock principle, and that is that the Clean Air Act requires EPA to achieve clean air in accordance with the standards that it has already set by the deadlines in the act. It has to do it on time. And unfortunately, there are multiple areas, multiple types of air pollution, multiple regions of the country where EPA is not doing what it has to do to ensure clean air by the deadlines.
0: The decision affected a similar case brought against the EPA by six states and New York City. The plaintiffs argued that the EPA was not doing enough to abide by the Clean Air Act's good neighbor provision. The EPA said it is considering rewriting a 2018 update to the rule. Attorneys representing the EPA asked the court to indefinitely delay oral arguments while it makes its decision. The court set an October 29th deadline for the EPA's decision. The Sierra Club ruling and the EPA's decision in the second case could affect air quality and admissions in the state of Indiana. Under Indiana law, the state's Environmental Rules Board is prohibited from adopting a rule or standard that is more stringent than the corresponding regulation or standard established under federal law. That means that what the EPA decides often becomes the standard the state will follow for environmental enforcement. Since 2015, ozone levels in the state have increased significantly. The increase is most notable in the state's industrial centers. In Columbus, reported ozone days from 111 in 2015 to 242 in 2018. The Elkhart-Goshen area rose from 96 days in 2015 to 194 days in 2018. Indianapolis also experienced an increase in the amount of yearly ozone days. It jumped from 122 in 2015 to 145 in 2018 the EPA has not said when it will make a decision on rewriting its cross-state air pollution rule.
2: Really, our understanding of how important clean air grows. There are new scientific advances and growing scientific understanding of how important clean air is and how harmful air pollution is. There was, for example, a study that came out of the University of Washington earlier this year that found that just a small increase in smog pollution, and that again is the, is the pollutant that's at issue um, in, in our cases, just a small increase in smog pollution outdoors is the equivalent of smoking a pack a day for 29 years in terms of your risk of developing emphysema. And that's just one of the many health problems that we know air pollution causes. We know that particle pollution, for example, unfortunately robs many Americans of their lives every year, and the toll is even higher in other countries around the world. So what I want to emphasize is that really there's still an air pollution crisis in this country. and. It's kind of an invisible crisis because you don't always see it, but the science is clear, and EPA needs to do a lot more to protect public health.
3: Hello, uh, this is one of your local citizens, Don Guerra. And I just want to, first of all, thank all of you for your contributions and for your encouragement to the Eco Report. I want to thank the ecologists of the world, Greenpeace, Greta Thunberg, Everyone who's been working so hard to overcome what many are calling a a systemic global battle against misinformation. We're trying very hard here to bring you into the right frame of mind to understand what's really happening in the science of our world. Now, to keep us going, we just had two wonderful contributions from George Romy and Kathy Romy for Golden Age Radio. But we're asking you now for your contribution to the ECO Report. People work so hard into the night putting this show together. A new sustaining membership of $60 or more can give the station a chance to understand just how much they have to work with during the year. That's $5 a month, $10 a month, however much you can do. If you do a membership of $60 a month, you'll get free admission Saturday to the Block Rocker concert out here on 4th Street. Contributing members are also welcome, if you want to just give a, a lump sum. But The important thing is to make an effort to join us and support the group. As Greta Thunberg says, we need to listen to the science. And on a positive note, Norm Holy has brought to our attention so many different things. First of all, we're the first station to report a successful osprey nesting on Lake Monroe. And in an interview with WildCare, we revealed that they're looking for a new property in order to build a bigger facility, especially so the public can attend educational programs. We're doing our best to give you the best that we can so that you can learn about the environment and support it for our future and our children's future. (music)
4: In the following feature, Norm Holy speaks with Dave Applin about the proposed pebble mine.
2: This is Norm Holy for WHB, and today I am interviewing Dave Applin. He is the Director of Education and Outreach for the Arctic Field Program for the World Wildlife Fund. And he comes to us from Anchorage, Alaska. And the subject uh, that he's going to talk about um, and the area would be the proposed Pebble Mine, and that's in the area of Bristol Bay. So could you tell us what the concept of the Pebble Mine is?
1: You bet. Uh, Pebble Mine is a proposal or an idea that's been around since about 1988. It's the deposit, probably one of the largest uh, gold and copper and molybdenum deposits in north america and the world uh is located in bristol bay and everybody's got a map of alaska with them and maybe that context would be helpful uh if you take your right hand and you fold your last three fingers against your hand you got a pointer with your thumb up and your index finger out flip that over and uh, point your index finger down a little bit and you've got a map of alaska with your thumb being southeast and barrel up there on the the ridge between your wrist and your pinky Bristol Bay is the area between your index finger and your middle finger it's a it's a vast area about 40,000 square miles so it's a little bigger than Indiana and it's one of the last salmon strongholds on the planet this year more than 56 million sockeye salmon returned to their natal waters to the streams that they uh, Hatched from eggs in three or two or three years ago, and they're uh, uh, re- they're finishing that uh, process right now. There's seven major river systems within the Bristol Bay watershed, and the pebble deposit is located at the headwaters of two of the most important of those river systems: the Kuijak and the Nushagak rivers. Uh, it's low-grade ore, and it's the kind of uh, rock and mineral material that can produce acid mine waste if exposed to air. But back in the late 80s, the deposit was discovered. And over the subsequent 30 years, there have been different schemes and strategies to develop that mine. The quality of the ore and the location and everything would require an open pit mine uh, and maybe later some kind of different technologies. But uh, as of 2017 or so, a proposal by the Pebble Limited Partnership was presented to the Army Corps of Engineers, and a permitting process began to uh, uh, permit the mine through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It's the first of a number of permits that are required, but it's probably the most important and uh, has got people very excited in the region. This is a remote area. You can't drive there. The only way to get to Bristol Bay is to fly or to uh, take a boat around the end of the Alaska Peninsula. Uh, It's uh, a basin that is vast uh, and many times flat tundra, streams, and lakes with adjacent forests. It's surrounded by mountains, the Alaska Range to the north, and there are mountains separating Bristol Bay from the Yukon Kuskokwim, uh, Delta to the north, it's uh, a perfect place for uh, raising all five species of Pacific s- salmon, and especially sockeye salmon. Sockeye salmon uh, grow in abundance there, uh, mostly because of their life history and life cycle. They need small ponds and lakes and other areas to develop from, from their inception as eggs uh, until they're ready to swim into the ocean as smolt and the habitat is just perfect for these sockeye salmon in fact about half of the world's uh, sockeye salmon served are from bristol bay and it's uh one of those last strongholds that that uh sort of is an interesting reflection on all of that salmon habitat that, that that formerly ran from california all the way up to alaska and across to russia uh, it's uh, as as development has occurred over time and as people have moved in and altered landscapes uh, this is one of those uh, remarkable places that remain uh, so the and
2: so let me uh, let me just ask and, what what what, it, what of the wild salmon fishery is left in other areas
1: well it's if, if you take a look at the original range uh the areas in California and Oregon and Washington State all are struggling for returns of salmon, and that's a that's a historic development over the last hundred years or so. Uh, even uh, the areas that are are famous for salmon in British Columbia are struggling as well. This year, the Fraser River, which is the major River system that empties into the southern edge of uh, British Columbia had a, a significant failure this year in its salmon returns. So salmon today are abundant. Wild salmon are abundant in Alaska, uh, from uh, you know the, the border down near Ketchikan all the way up to Norton Sound. But uh, as as we're seeing, it's many of those systems are struggling a little bit in Alaska as well, especially as the streams warm and uh, our human activities around those streams change. Uh, Those uh, salmon systems are not doing great necessarily, even in Alaska. Uh, There are some systems here on Cook Inlet, which is the body of water that reaches up to Anchorage that are, during the summer, surpassing the temperatures that salmon can survive in, in those natal streams so uh, there's there's a uh, stress on the whole system all the way from california up here through alaska and it's very interesting that uh, bristol bay remains a uh, uh, refugia or at least a, a place where salmon uh, populations and returns are 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 still impressive and and in fact remarkable
4: For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is EcoReport, founded by the late, much-loved, and greatly-missed Lucille Bertuccio, longtime WFHB volunteer.